All right, Two Rivers, let's turn in our Bibles to Mark chapter 9 this morning as we continue uh, this journey through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we were in Mark 8, uh, finished Mark 8 last week. We'll be in Mark 9, 2 through 13 uh, this morning, uh, known as the Transfiguration story. But before we get there, uh, I want to unpack a few things from last week's text that we didn't have time to talk about because we're going to need contextually uh, to make sure we're connecting chapter 8, what happened at the end of chapter 8 with the transfiguration story, the beginning of chapter 9. So uh, by way of reminder, if you remember, Jesus had asked his disciples this question, who do you say that I am? And they answered, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say one of the prophets. And then Jesus asked them the same question again, I think emphasizing the word you, but who do you say that I am? And then Peter answered correctly. He said in verse 29 in chapter 8, you are the Christ. In other words, you are our long-awaited Messiah. Now, it's interesting that this confession, you are the Christ, occurs at the very center of Mark's gospel, and it's a hinge, really, between the first half of Mark and the second half of Mark. In the first half of Mark's gospel, uh, Jesus' power is very evident and pronounced, and in the second half of the gospel, Jesus' suffering will become evident. Now, it's important for us to understand that no Jew uh, would have expected uh, their Messiah to suffer, including Peter and the disciples, because in the first century, most Jews believed that the Messiah would be a royal figure. Think, uh, think about King David. The, the Messianic prophecies is that the Messiah would come through the line of King David, and so they would have thought that the Messiah would be a king like David, whom God would empower to dominate uh, their foes and deliver Israel. Now, Jesus indeed is the expected Messiah, but he would be the Messiah in the most unexpected ways. He would be the Messiah that would suffer and die and resurrect. Uh, and in verse 30 in chapter 8, this is why uh, Jesus warned them. When Peter said, you are the Christ, the very next thing that happened in verse 30 is Jesus warned them not to tell anyone uh, that. Uh, and then he said to Peter, after Peter said, you are the Christ, he said, he warned them not to tell anyone. The question I want to ask here uh, with you is, why would Jesus say this? Why would Jesus say, warn them in verse 30, not to tell anyone? Well, uh, because they needed clarity. The disciples needed clarity about what being the Christ really meant. And Peter's understanding of what Christ meant was wrong and needed correcting. Uh, Jesus didn't want Peter's faulty understanding of him being the Christ shared with the crowds. Now, how do we know this? Uh, because of what happens literally in the next verse in chapter 8, it's verse 31. After So Peter, verse 29, says, you are the Christ. Verse 30, Jesus warns them not to tell anyone. And then in verse 31, Jesus immediately predicts the coming of his suffering, of his death, 
and of his resurrection. And if you remember the account when we read it last week, uh, what happens next? Peter pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him, showing that he clearly didn't know what Jesus being the Christ really meant. And then Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Now, here's what I want us to get from chapter 8 before we get into chapter 9. The things of God. What is the things of God that we need to understand about Jesus being the Messiah? The plan of God for salvation to mankind was Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Savior being an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. He said that the cross was foolishness to the Greeks, and it was a stumbling block to the Jews. And Peter here in the end of chapter 8 uh, perhaps was the first to stumble over the offense of a suffering Messiah. And so for Peter, a suffering Messiah was impossible, which again is why he rebuked Jesus for talking about that. You see, God's, God's plan, his plan of restoration, his plan of redemption runs counter to everything that the Jewish people were expecting, which is a Messiah that would come as a triumphant hero, dishing out punishment to everyone who opposed him. Instead of, instead of a Messiah who would receive the punishment upon himself in place of other people. So at the end of Mark 8, we see Jesus uh, unveiling the secret of his messianic mission, a suffering, death, and resurrection. There are words at the end of Mark 8 uh, where it talks about the glory of Jesus and Jesus coming with the holy angels and the kingdom of God's power. In fact, let's, let's read this uh, together. Um, let's start in verse 35. Jesus says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he, hear this, when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels, underline glory, underline holy angels. And then in chapter 9, verse 1, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, there will be some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. The words at the end of chapter 8 and in verse 1 of chapter 9 that I want you to pay attention to here is glory and holy angels and the kingdom of God coming with power. This comes right after Jesus predicted his own suffering. The point I want to make here is that the suffering that Jesus predicts of himself will not go on forever. The resurrection of the Son of Man and his coming in glory with the holy angels removes the sting from the cross. And the promise, the confident promise of, 
uh, verse 1 in chapter 9 is pretty powerful. When Jesus tells the people, the disciples, some of you here will not taste death. You will not die before you see with your own eyes the kingdom of God coming in power. Peter and James and John were about to see it in the transfiguration narrative that we're about to read in the next verses. The others would see it after the cross when Jesus would visit them and in his resurrection. And so what we're putting together here is the suffering of Jesus and the glory of Jesus in our understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do. So uh, with that said, uh, let's read our passage. Again, this is uh, Mark 9, 2 through 13, the famous transfiguration story. Verse 2, after six days, after what had just happened in the end of chapter 8, six days go by. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them and there appeared to them elijah with moses and they were talking with jesus and peter said to jesus rabbi which means teacher or master it is good that we are here let us make three tents one for you and one for moses and one for elijah for he did not know what to say for they were terrified and a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud this is my beloved son listen to him and suddenly looking around they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only and as they were coming down from the mountain he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the son of man had risen from the dead so they kept the matter to themselves questioning what this rising from the dead might mean and they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah, that first Elijah must come? And Jesus said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. This is the word of God in our passage for the morning. Uh, before, I, before I say anything else here, I'm going to make um, kind of two, two big points about this passage uh, with, with our time together. But before I say anything else, I really I want to state this clearly. Uh, our Christology must hold together the reality that the suffering of Jesus is not incompatible with his glory. That the two must go hand in hand. The suffering of Jesus and the glory of Jesus must go hand in hand in our Christology. Contextually, uh, let's be reminded that the transfiguration story is set right after Jesus predicts his own suffering and death. The transfiguration story reveals Jesus' divinity as God's son. And it offers comfort and hope of ultimate vindication. And in spite of the suffering, Jesus will be glorified, and all who believe in him will be glorified. I, I want to um, remind you of something that Paul said in Romans chapter 8. Paul is uh, teaching, he is encouraging 
the church about the reality of present suffering and future glory. I think this is quite relevant for us in these days that we're walking in right now. Uh, the reality of present suffering, present uncertainty, present unknown, and the reality of the future glory that we have in Jesus. So Paul reminds the church and reminds us this morning, this is Romans 8, verses 16 to 18. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And if we are children, then we are heirs. We are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Hallelujah for that promise. Again, suffering prediction, the end of Mark 8. The glory of Jesus, the beginning of Mark 9, our Christology must hold those two things together. Paul makes that quite clear as well in Romans chapter 8. Okay, so let's unpack this a little bit. Uh, Six days after the promise of chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus takes three of the disciples up on a high mountain. We don't know where that is. Scholars don't know where that is. It could be... Uh, a mountain called Tabor outside of Nazareth, and it could be uh, a mountain up on the north side of the Sea of Galilee called, Connor's in this room right now, Hermon. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. All right. Um, we, we don't really know what mountain it is. Um, honestly, that's kind of beside the point. Um, but it is fun to speculate about where this could be. Uh, what I want to point out about this high mountain is this. High mountains are traditional places for very special revelation in Scripture. So think, think with me for just a second. Six days after they go up on a high mountain, does six days on a high mountain remind you of something important in the Old Testament? How many days did Moses spend on, before God on Mount Sinai? Ding, 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 ding. Six, six days. And you can, uh, you can read these passages later. Uh, it's Exodus 24 and Exodus 34. We're not going to turn there now. Uh, but I want to make a connection between Moses on Mount Sinai and the transfiguration of Jesus in Mark chapter 9. Because there are other similarities between the two. Uh, here are a few. Moses, his skin shines when he descends the mountain. Jesus is transfigured with his clothes becoming radiant white. God appears to Moses in veiled form overshadowed by a cloud. God appears in the transfiguration in the same way. And God speaks to Moses from the cloud. And in the transfiguration story in our text today, God speaks to Peter, James, and John from the cloud as well. Here's the point. What happened to Moses on Mount Sinai shed some light on what the transfiguration story means. Now here's some Jewish context. Jewish traditions, Jewish expectation uh, interpreted Moses' ascent of Sinai as enthronement. And so the parallel with the transfiguration is Jesus' glory as king. So to overstate this, because I think this is so important for us to understand, 
the transfiguration story serves to confirm that the suffering Jesus will endure as Messiah. The suffering Jesus as Messiah is not incompatible with his glory. And for a brief moment, the three disciples catch a glimpse of the truth of the divine glory of Jesus shining through the veil of his suffering. So that's an important point that I want to point out here is that the reality of the suffering Jesus and his glory. Uh, The second point is the figures of Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah are eschatological figures of deliverance, of deliverance, eschatological, eschaton, the end times, um, expectations of what God would do through Messiah. So because they are eschatological figures of deliverance, Moses was Israel's first deliverer. And Elijah the prophet was to appear at the dawning of the end of time, the end of time, the eschaton, the end. He was to appear at the dawning of the end of time and would be God's ultimate redemption of Israel. Both Moses and Elijah are mentioned in a prophecy by Malachi. Uh, It's Malachi chapter 4, 4 to 6. We're not going to read that right now, but I would encourage you to write that down. Go read that later as you continue to think and process and pray through this passage. Um, As you know from our narrative that we just read, there's a bit of confusion in Peter and James and John uh, about Elijah that Jesus clears up on their way back down the mountain. Because from Malachi's prophecy, there was an expectation that Elijah would come first uh, before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And that they, their hope, their Jewish hope, is that uh, this, this um, reality of Elijah coming first would launch into an earthly kingdom of messianic splendor. Again, thinking about King David, again, uh, defeating the foes of Israel and Israel being placed back into a place of prominence in, um, in their day. Now think on this with me for a second. They are still confused about the suffering reality. Uh, It's so foreign to them to think about a Messiah suffering. And so in verse 10, it says that they were still questioning what rising from the dead might mean. They are confused about how the Son of Man's rising from the dead fits the timeline if Elijah is supposed to come first. That's, That's where they're confused. Malachi's prophecy, Elijah is going to come first. Jesus is talking with him about suffering and dying. And there's all this, and then they see his glorified, this glimpse of his glory on the transfiguration. And so the confusion for them is the timeline about the Son of Man rising from the dead and how that fits if Elijah is supposed to come first. And what Jesus says when he clears it up for them, it's interesting, what he says is that Elijah has already come. Because they're thinking Elijah hasn't come yet. But Jesus tells them that Elijah has come. I want to read verse 12 and 13 again. And Jesus said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. Um, Mark doesn't tell us something that 
Matthew does. And I think it's helpful uh, to compare the same transfiguration story that Matthew gives us with our passage this morning. Because here's in the same account of Matthew's gospel, he makes the connection between John the Baptist and Elijah being specific. This is Matthew 7, 13, 17, 13. Then the disciples understood that Jesus was speaking to them of John the Baptist. In other words, when Jesus is telling them that Elijah has already come, he is telling them that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of that prophecy from Malachi 4 as the Elijah. So stay with me here. we got to think through this. What does it mean that Elijah has already come? Contrary to Jewish expectation, Elijah's return Elijah's return does not herald the approach of a messianic rulership over Israel's enemies. Instead, instead, because Elijah has already come, the disciples must rethink what it means for Messiah to restore all things. They can no longer think of triumphant uh, this triumphant uh, reality of, uh, of the Messiah in the natural. They have to rethink. They have to be renewed in their minds to understand Messiah as a suffering servant, which Jesus had just predicted in Mark 8. Elijah, John the Baptist, goes before Messiah in what way? In the way of suffering and death, if you remember, John the Baptist had already died a martyr's death, and the disciples were the ones that carried him away and buried him. So Elijah has already come preparing the way of Jesus in suffering and death. Let's go back. Let's go back for a minute to Peter coming down the mountain and his misunderstanding of Jesus again. Uh, the, the, the patience of the Lord with Peter is just remarkable and should be a great encouragement uh, to us. Uh, the same guy that said, you are the Christ in Mark 8, and then pulled Jesus aside and told him to stop talking about suffering. And then Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Here Peter is one week later. It's one week later on the Mount of Transfiguration. He sees, he sees Christ. He sees Moses. He sees Elijah transfigured before them. And he says, let's make three tents. One for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He was, he was afraid. And when we get afraid, oftentimes we, we miss the truth. Uh, this is common to our, uh, our, our humanity. I think it's um, in some ways a reality of probably what some, if not many of us, are struggling with even today with the uncertainty of today and um, the anxiety that some of us may be feeling about what's going on in our world right now. Uh, he was afraid. He was missing the truth. Verse 6 says, for they were terrified. And here's what he says. Let's build a tent for all three. In other words, he puts Moses and Elijah on par with Jesus. And then what happens next? The very next thing that happens in the narrative, as soon as Peter speaks out of his anxiety, he speaks out of his fear, and he goes, oh, let's make three tents, and he puts Jesus on par with Moses and Elijah. The very next thing that happens, the Father speaks out of the cloud. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And then in verse 8, it says, and they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. 
which I think is really important for us to notice. I want you to underline in verse 8 where it says, Jesus only. The Father is helping them understand that it's this is about Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, the Christ. It's Jesus only, Jesus and only Jesus. And I would say for us as an encouragement and as a strength and as a hope, underline that, highlight that, declare that in your life, declare that over your family, declare that over our church, declare that over our city and over our world. Jesus only believe that. Lean into Jesus only. Listen to him. Take every thought captive. Every thought captive that floods our minds and our hearts in this season and make it obedient to Christ, to Jesus only. In his suffering and in his glory, Jesus only. Listen to Jesus only. I believe this is a hope-filled truth for us today. Don't listen to your fear. That's what Peter did. He was terrified. Don't listen to his fear. Don't listen to your fear. Listen to Jesus only. And Transfiguration offered a peek into the future for the disciples. I believe it offers much more for us today on this side of the cross and the resurrection. Jesus indeed is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the Savior. He has restored all things, our suffering servant dying in our place and raising from the dead, now sitting in his glory at the right hand of God the Father. We live today in a broken world uh, with very hard things to face, as we are today. And no matter what may come our way, glory the glory of God in Jesus awaits all those who call upon the name of Jesus. And so when we are in the valley, his presence, comfort, his presence comforts us. Therefore, we don't have to be afraid, church. When we are in the valley, his presence comforts us. Therefore, we don't have to be afraid, even in the midst of uncertainty, even in the midst of the unknown, even in the midst of, of suffering, God's present glory shines through us. So let us keep our eyes on Jesus only. Uh, the, he is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And so I pray for you and would speak this to you and your family. Uh, let us keep our eyes on Jesus only today and in the days to come. God the Father says, listen only to him. And so fill your mind and heart with the hope and the peace and the joy and the comfort that is in Jesus only. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, our hope and our peace. I want to close this morning by reading uh, a passage out of Romans 5. Romans 5, we'll close here. Romans 5, verses 1 to 4. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice 
in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Would you pray uh, with me? Lord, we, we do, we give you thanks for um, the word of your truth this morning. Lord, we thank you that you are the Lord of glory, uh, that you uh, came and that you uh, suffered and died and rose again, atoning for our sins. Lord, you have reconciled us. You have restored us. You have redeemed us. Uh, we bless your name. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your transfiguration. Uh, we thank you that we uh, see with eyes of faith. Uh, Lord, I pray in this season of our lives, with all of the uncertainty in our world, uh, Lord, that we would stand on the truth of your scripture, uh, that we would listen to you only, that we would find our hope and our peace and our faith in you and the confident expectation of good and the promises that you give us in your word. I pray for each person watching, listening, that you would give them a resolve of hope and peace deep in their core because you are always with us, even to the end of the age. We bless your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>